uh, by his counsel and by his teaching. And so it is my uh, great privilege to have him come to our pulpit this morning and to open God's word for us as a congregation. Jim, would you come open God's word for us? It's a privilege to be with you today. I have known Dave since he came into this presbytery. I was the moderator of the presbytery at the time, and uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to know him then before we left this area, and glad to have reconnected since we came back. It was a privilege to be with your officers yesterday and to enjoy our time of fellowship and study and, and prayer, and I just rejoice to see the leaders that God has raised up to serve this congregation. Dave and I reconnected shortly after we moved back here uh, a year ago, basically because he took the initiative and sought me, sought me out. We've been getting together now about once a month at least just to talk and share and find out what God is doing in one another's lives. And Susie and I were thinking a little bit about Dave's name at one time, Silvernail. is a kind of an unusual name. You don't hear that very often except in this church where you have a lot of Silvernails. And, um, and we were wondering if maybe there might not be some Native American derivation in there. It's basically, it's Dutch, of course. But, but we sort of decided that uh, there is some Native American strain in there. Around our house, Dave is, is lovingly known as the chief. And so when, uh, when Fridays roll around and I'm hitting out the door, Susie will say, are you going out to lunch with the chief? And I'll say, yeah, I'm going to have lunch with the chief. And, you know, spending time with him and your elders this weekend, I kind of think that name fits pretty well. He's sort of like the chief, you know, he's got this council of braves and warriors around him, and this tribe of vagabonds that he's leading and so forth. It's, a, I think, a most appropriate name. So I'm grateful to be here this morning and share in the chief's ministry a little bit and bring the Word of God to you. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read the verse, first 12 verses. This is the Word of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, nor sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go out into its into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Father, we bring ourselves before your word this morning to hear what our Lord Jesus Christ has to say. Open up your truth now and teach us and guide us into all truth by your spirit, that we may encounter you in your glory and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our text this morning confronts us with an awesome challenge and opportunity. Jesus puts it to us in the form of a promise when he says, The harvest is plentiful. There are lots of people out there ready to hear the gospel and receive the good news of the kingdom. 
and enter into the family of God and become sons and daughters of the King of Kings. But it also declares a need, doesn't it? Though the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. Not many people want to go out into that harvest. And so it raises some questions in my mind about uh, whether or not the word of Jesus is really reliable and true. Can we trust what Jesus has to say? Is he right about that? Or was he just speaking about his own day, that the harvest was plentiful then? But if he is telling us the truth that speaks of our own time as well as his, then it begs the question, what are we supposed to do about this? And the text, of course, answers that question for us as well. We're ultimately going to come down to the place where we're going to address three questions that every one of us has to confront in the light of what our Lord Jesus declares in this text. The first question is this, do we believe Jesus Christ? Do we believe what he says, that he knows what he's talking about, that his promise is true? Do we believe that really? And the second question that it confronts us with is, do we care about lost people? Do we have any consideration or concern whatsoever for the circumstances under which we live and for what lies ahead for them beyond the grave? Do we care about the lost? And the last question, the most pointed one, will we take up the challenge that our Lord Jesus issues for us in this text? So I'm just going to look at this from two perspectives. First of all, from the perspective of what Jesus promises, whether or not we can actually believe that and why I think we can. And then secondly, what we're supposed to do about it and how that applies to us individually. When I first became a Christian 40 years ago, it was not uncommon in churches all around the land to find some kind of program or activity going on that was deliberately reaching out to the members of the local community in a consistent and systematic manner with a way to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and invite them to consider becoming followers of the Lord. Uh, different denominations did different kinds of things. The Methodists had what they called the lay witness mission, where uh, couples from one church would uh, pack their bags and go and live for a week with uh, people in another church in another town. And uh, during that week, all kinds of events would be uh, uh, scheduled in which the people in the local church would invite their friends to come to their homes and come to the church. And then the people who had come as missionaries from the other church would share their testimonies, would share the gospel, would be used to reach out to the community by that church. This went on for years in the Methodist church. Other churches had systematic programs of reaching out to the lost. A campus crusade used to sponsor what they called the Lay Institute for Evangelism, where speakers would come into town for a week. They would combine training and outreach. And after that, then the people would take the four spiritual laws and would go into the community, sometimes door to door, sometimes in other kinds of ways, uh, for extended periods of time, reaching out with the gospel to the people in their neighborhoods and in their city. Hundreds and hundreds of churches, even thousands of churches in this country and elsewhere, adopted programs like Evangelism Explosion which people were trained to understand the gospel and to share it and in a consistent kind of way reach out to visitors to the church and other people in the community. And so it wasn't uncommon wherever you went to look around and see that people were active in their churches reaching out to the members of their community, sharing the good news of Christ and bringing people into the fold. And so for many years, the church continued to grow. The numbers of people joining in evangelical churches of all kinds were increasing faster than the rate of the population. 
Time Magazine even declared back in 1978, the year of the evangelical was the cover story for that year. So much was going on. And yet how things have changed. Because in our day, it seems to me, the church has kind of lost the cutting edge of evangelism. In many ways, over the past two decades, I think it's probably been, churches have seemed to exchange this kind of go-tell mandate for more of a come-see approach to reaching the lost. They have done everything they can imagine to do in their times of worship, in their architecture and their programming and the way they structure their church to make their church an appealing place for people to come. Many churches I know even take out ads in the local paper at the expense of thousands of dollars a year. I know because we did this when I was a pastor in Baltimore, telling people where we were and what the sermon would be and, of course, who would be preaching the sermon on that particular week and spent thousands of dollars every year advertising to the local community how you can come and see what we're all about because we know that the first thing that unbelievers do on Saturday morning after they roll out of bed is tear open the religion page to try to decide where they're going to go to church tomorrow. <laughs> the river of outreach from the church to the local community has pretty much dried up. And in the vacuum created by the lack of our evangelistic effort, others have stepped forward to evangelize their own worldviews with increasing passion and fervor. People like Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins who declare the gospel of atheism and debunk the claims of Christ and the Bible and Scripture and deny the existence of God and call men and women, young and old, to join them and this crusade of atheism that's sweeping the globe. What we're beginning to see now is that the rate of growth of church membership, especially in the evangelical community, is not keeping pace with the rate of growth of the population in general. And so our response to that has been, of course, to multiply more programs, make more adjustments, and try more earnestly to get people to come to us and see what we're all about. There are 3,000 megachurches in this country defined as churches with over 3,000 members, some as many as 50,000 members. There are 365,000 churches in this country. We live in a time in which there are more evangelical seminaries training more men and women for the ministry of the gospel in one form or another, graduating more people every year into the churches. New churches are being started hand over fist. We have an evangelical subculture that encompasses everything from radio and television to MP3 downcasts and to the internet and all manner of things. And yet every year the church is more and more marginal to the real issues of life in our culture and society. Why is that? I think the answer is simple. We are not an obedient people. And God does not bless disobedience. No matter how fast we run and how hard we strive and how many our exertions may be, if they are not what God has commanded, do not expect Him to bless. Go and make all the nations disciples, Jesus said. 
And instead we say to the world, come and find us, for here we are ready to serve. So we need to consider whether the Lord Jesus is really true when he says to us, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Let me share with you five reasons why I think we can believe that the Lord Jesus knows what he's talking about. It's not just that the harvest was plentiful in his day. He was teaching his disciples that the harvest is plentiful. In the Great Commission, he told them to teach all disciples everything that he had taught them. So if he taught them that the harvest was plentiful then, it must be plentiful now as well. And there are five reasons why that's so. First is the doctrine of election. The biblical doctrine of election declares that from before the foundations of the world, God has determined whom he will save and that he will save them by means of the proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a difficult doctrine. I know it's hard to understand. In some ways, it doesn't seem fair. Paul deals with that perception of the doctrine of election in Romans chapter 9 in which he says, look, this is just the way that God has chosen to do it. Because after all, every person who is apart from faith in Jesus Christ is dead in trespasses and sins, deaf to the word of the gospel, blind to the truth of the Lord, not merely indifferent to the things of God, but as Paul says in Romans 5, a veritable enemy of Christ. Now, it will do very little good to preach anything to such people unless God is determined in advance that he's going to work in the lives of some. And he has. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15? You didn't choose me. Well, do you, you think you chose me? You think you're so smart and clever that you figured out that I'm the one to follow? You think you chose me? You think that's why you've been following me around for three and a half years? You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I drew you to myself in order that you may abide in me and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. I chose you. And I'm sure every one of those disciples except one at that point in time said, and yes, Lord, I'm very glad you did. The Apostle Paul told the church at Ephesus that they had been chosen to be in Christ from before the foundations of the world. Before the world was even created, God knew them by name, as indeed he knows all of his chosen ones by name, as he knew you by name, before the first word of creation was spoken. God has in every age, our confession tells us, and in every generation, those whom he is pleased to call out from darkness into the light of the gospel and to make his own sons and daughters which simply means that in this community and all around us in these neighborhoods that keep growing and burgeoning year after year after year, when he came here as pastor, this was a little crossroads. There was almost nothing out here. Look at this place now. And populating those houses and this morning watching the Sunday news programs or heading out to the woods or riding their bikes in the neighborhood or cutting their lawns are multiplied thousands of those on whom God has sent his love and his predetermined choice from before the foundations of the world. They're just waiting like you and I waited for so many years to hear the good news that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and risen for our justification. They're out there. 
Make no mistake about it. The harvest is plentiful. There's a second reason why I think we can believe that the harvest is plentiful, and that's because of what we see in the Scriptures concerning the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of lost people. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 is a very telling verse. The ESV misses the translation here, so don't look uh, there. Look somewhere else. God, looking at the horrible condition of things on planet Earth, says this, My spirit will not always strive with men. Which means what? That the Spirit of God does strive with people. The Spirit of God is like the eyes of God. He roves to and fro across the earth, striving with men and women, trying to get their attention, trying to turn their hearts away from their wicked ways that they might seek out the Lord. Paul talks about this in Acts 17. When he says, look, God has set it up this way in terms of men and nations and governments and so forth, and he is intending that people should seek him out, and he sends his Spirit out to woo and to cajole and to provoke and even to stimulate in order that they might seek him. That's why when Jesus came to the apostle Paul on that Damascus robe, remember what he said to him? Paul, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. The Spirit had been prodding and goading and striving with Paul all those many years. And of course, at that point, Paul said, well, you're right, I give up. Now, God doesn't strive with people forever. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, after seasons of striving, the Spirit begins to give up on people, and He gives them up to the consequences of their own sinful choices so that they begin to find themselves on a downward spiral of increasing sin, iniquity, corruption, and destruction. Three times Paul says, and God gave them up, and God gave them up. It's like God is holding on for all of His might. He's he got His arms around them, striving to pull them to Himself. And yet they will not. And so even as we sit here this morning in the comfort of this place, rejoicing to belong to God because of the Spirit striving in our lives, there are people out there today who by one means or another are being striven with by the Spirit of God as He seeks to get their attention, either through their sense of guilt and shame or their wonder at the world around them or their gratitude to who knows what for the many blessings in their life or because of what they see in the witness of some Christian at the workplace or school. God's Spirit is striving. He's out there ahead of us. Get the field ready. All we got to do is show up. Now, there's a third reason why I think that we can believe that the harvest is plentiful. And that is because of the inherent power of the gospel. The gospel is not magic. It's not hypnotism. It's power. It's divine power. Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. There is something in that explanation of the fact that Jesus came to fulfill all the righteousness that we can never fulfill in our own lives, and yet to die on the cross to bear the burden of our sins against the wrath of God, and that He rose again in order to declare the way unto everlasting life and provide the justification we need to be able to come into the presence of God without fear, and that He reigns in power even now, and He's coming again as we sang earlier. There is power in that story. 
which when it is shared with another person, if it is the pleasure of God by His Spirit to accompany that power, that power overcomes all opposition and allows people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's how the gospel worked to get you here. I mean, isn't the Apostle Paul a perfect example of that? Here he is marching down the road to Damascus, riding on his horse. He's got his head held high. He's going to persecute the Christians. And God shows up and says, that's enough. Now you're mine. And Paul says, okay, well, what do I do? Because you cannot resist that power when it pleases God to apply it to your soul. When the Spirit has been striving with people, those who have been chosen by God upon hearing the good news of the gospel will irresistibly come to Him because the gospel is powerful. Now Paul says we hold this powerful treasure in earthen vessels, weak and breakable and frail, you know, we like to keep them on the shelf. But he's decided to plant that power in us that we might use it to the praise of the glory of His grace. So God has chosen and is striving with those whom He's chosen and has prepared a word of good news for them, which when they hear it in God's timing, they cannot resist. There's a fourth reason why I think we can believe the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is this. The devil, old Nick, is helpless against the power of the gospel. Jesus said what? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The counsels of hell, the schemes and plots and connivings of the devil will not be able to keep me from building my church. In Matthew chapter 12, we find the Lord Jesus casting out demons right and left, and people are saying, oh, there's an easy explanation for this. He's in league with the devil. Jesus says, hold on, let's examine that. If I'm in league with the devil, would I be casting out the devil's minions? Does that make sense? Well, no, duh. But if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then know this, the kingdom of God has come. Otherwise, unless a man binds the strong man and sets him aside, how will he be able to plunder his house the way you see me plundering the devil's holdings? The devil is bound. Oh, he's still a force to be reckoned with. He's on a chain. He's held back and restrained by the Lord. He cannot prevent us from doing the work of building the church which begins in prayer and the outreach of the gospel. We have to be on guard against him, and we have to recognize temptation when it comes our way and be prepared to resist the devil so that he will flee from us. Imagine that, the devil fleeing from you, from me. But the promise is that he will. He cannot resist us. He will not prevail. And though I know a lot of Christian fiction and speculation over the past 20 years has turned the faith of our kingdom, Christ, into a kind of spiritual Taoism in which there's this uncertain struggle between equal forces of good and evil and the outcome's not quite clear, that simply is not true. That is a lie. Jesus Christ is Lord and is putting all of His enemies under His feet, beginning with the devil. The fifth reason why I think we can believe that the Lord Jesus is telling us the truth is because He's the Lord of the harvest. 
He doesn't do useless things. He doesn't do trivial things. He doesn't do meaningless things. Everything that Jesus does is for Jesus' purposes unto the praise of the glory of our God and Father. Unlike us, we waste a lot of time and do foolish and silly and frivolous things that don't mean anything. Jesus doesn't. Isaiah tells us in chapter 55 that when the Word of God goes out, it will accomplish God's purposes. It goes out not in vain because the Word of God is superintended by the Lord of the harvest. And when that Word is sown, it will accomplish the purpose for which the Lord has sent it out. And if there are chosen ones out there, and there are, being striven with by the Spirit, and there are, when that powerful gospel comes them, knocking the devil out of the way as it enters into their minds and hearts, they will hear and they will believe just as you have, just as I have. Because indeed the harvest is plentiful. They're out there, friends and neighbors. But the need is clear. The labors are few. I think that's uh, fairly self-evident. There's lots of fruit out there to be gathered in. There are not many people going looking for it. All around Loudoun County this morning, all around the state of Virginia, all over the country, are churches which have basically set themselves up in a kind of a come-see mentality in the vain belief that their Lord Jesus Christ commanded the world to go to church rather than the other way around. And during the rest of the week, those people who look so eagerly around every Sunday morning to see whether or not there might be some new visitors present in their church in response to the church's invitation to come and see, go out into the world, go out into their neighborhood, go out into their workplace with scarcely a thought concerning the fact that they might have been sent there to be workers in the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Well, obviously, we want to redress that situation. None of us is content with that. People out there ready to hear the good news, ready to enter into the new life that Christ offers them, ready to know the power of the righteousness, peace, and joy of the kingdom of God. If they're out there and waiting, why, we want to bring them in. We want them to share in this little tribe. We want to be a part of this vagabond group that's seeking the Lord and following wherever He leads us under the chief and His braves. We want those folks to come and be a part of this. So what do we do? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark. He didn't say, figure it out for yourselves. We act a lot of times like that's what Jesus does say. We're figured out for ourselves. We've got to come up with something to make this work. And he says, no, this is the way you do it. Pray. Pray. Remember the story of uh, the Syrian general who made his way to the prophet because he had leprosy? And he said to the prophet, is your God powerful to clean my leprosy? And uh, Elisha said, sure, just go down the river over there and wash seven times. Well, he went away on a huff. Well, I thought I was supposed to go out and slay some dragons, you know, or build a palace, you know, or, or bring back some scalps or something like that. I'm not going to wash down the river. And a little girl says to him, you know, if he told you to do all that, would you do it? Well, yeah. Well, why don't you go try that washing in the river, see if it works, and it did. Pray? I mean, all we got to do is start to pray that God will bring in the harvest? I mean, surely there's more to it than that. I mean, don't we need to, you know, like have some big crusade or something like that? 
Don't we need to get some high-powered speakers in here or have some special music? Don't we need to adjust all kinds of things to get people to come? Well, you might need to, but if you don't start by praying, you can forget it. The Lord won't honor any of that. But what do we pray? Well, Jesus told us what to pray. Pray that the Lord would raise up laborers to go into the harvest. Well, there's a place to start, isn't it? How about if we just make a covenant with one another that every day we're going to pray, Lord, today raise up some laborers to go out in the harvest. Raise up some people who get that go-tell sort of thing. And raise them up, Lord, in this church and in lots of other churches around the county, around the state, around the country, around the world. Raise up those laborers, Lord. You've told us if we pray, you'll do so. And so I'm here this morning taking you at your word, and I'm praying today, and I'm going to pray every day that, Lord, you will raise up laborers to be thrust out into the harvest to bring in the chosen ones of Christ. So you could pray just in the most general term for all the churches all around the country and all over the world that God would raise up laborers in them. Secondly, Pray for the people in your own church. Wouldn't that be fun? Get yourself a copy of the church directory. You have 235 members. Is that about right, Dave? Fewer than that family units. I bet if you broke those family units down into about two a day, you could probably cover the whole church in a little more than a month. You know, just make yourself a little list. And tomorrow, starting tomorrow, pray for the first couple on the list. Today, Lord... Send them out as laborers in the harvest. Fill them with your spirit, Lord. Give them eyes to see the lost, Lord. Send them out with the gospel. Give them open doors of opportunity, Lord. Send them out there. Who's the first name in the directory this morning? Anybody know? Whoever you are, you're in trouble tomorrow. What would it be like if every month, month in and month out, everybody in this church prayed for everybody else that the Lord would make us laborers in the harvest? Send us out there, sensitive and compassionate toward lost people, willing to get to know them, eager to see an opportunity in our conversations with them to inject a word of testimony or share something from Scripture or invite them to church or even if it be possible to share the whole gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Pray for one another. Oh, and while you pray for one another, pray for yourself as well. Lord, today, send me out into the harvest. Now, Jesus taught us that when we pray, we need to persevere and pray. This is not a one-and-done deal. Lord, I've done that. Okay, now I can get on with my other stuff. Ask, seek, knock, pray like that importunate widow who demanded that that judge get out of his bed and give her the justice she was due in Luke chapter 11. Pray every day for harvesters generally, for one another as a church, and for yourself that God will thrust you out with a heart for the lost, with eyes for opportunities, with the right words to share at just the right time, that the word of the gospel may be sown in this growing community in ways it never has been before. Pray. Will you pray? That's not asking a lot, is it? But it's an act of obedience to Christ to take up the mandate to pray in the belief that when we do, He will answer. I almost hear a collective sigh of relief out there. Oh, pray. Yeah, I can do that. There's one other thing, though. 
Remember the context of our passage here. Jesus is speaking to whom? People that he has sent out. In the same way that he was sent, he's sending them out to preach the good news of the kingdom. And as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, just so I am sending you. We need to go. We need to go. We need to be like Isaiah first thing in the morning and say, Lord, here am I, send me today. Give me an opportunity to talk to somebody today about the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, right away, the prospect of that can be a little, well, daunting, even scary, right? Because, I mean, who are we after all? I mean, we're not theologians like the chief. We don't know all the answers to people's objections. We don't know what to expect out there. We're probably just going to mess it up, and then what good would that do? Better just lay low and let somebody else handle this. Oh, no, no, no. Two things you need to understand. First of all, Jesus said, I'll take care of everything. You just go out there and go. He said to these people, don't worry about your money. Don't worry about your clothes. In the next couple of chapters over, I think it's chapter 12, Jesus says to him, when you get in front of people and the opportunity comes to share, don't even worry about what you're going to say. Start talking and I'll give you the words you need. Jesus has promised to give us the words that we need. But we have to be there and begin that conversation. The second thing you need to know is that just because you share the gospel with somebody doesn't mean that everybody you share the gospel with is going to become a Christian. Think about Acts chapter 17, verses 32 to 34, when Paul was there in the Areopagus in Athens. And he preached the gospel. There were three particular types of results. Some people, when they realized what he was talking about, oh, it's that Jesus thing. They mocked him. They laughed at him. They doubtless talked about him behind his back said mean things to him, maybe even threatened him. Ooh. But some people said, you know, we'd like to talk about this some more. We're not, we're not ready for this just now, but we would, we'd like to pursue this a little further. Is that an option? And then some, a few, the text tells us, actually believed. And so if we go out to share the gospel, you know, and we're starting, we're having a good conversation with people, all of a sudden we begin to bring in a spiritual subject, we start talking about our faith in Christ, and we share the good news with somebody, what should we expect? We should expect nothing other than the very same thing. Some people are going to get upset with us. Some people are going to say, you know, it's interesting, can we talk about this some more? And some people will believe and want to know what the next step is. See, I think sometimes when we share the gospel with people and they get upset, we feel like, oh, man, I've really messed up. Look what I've done. I've made, I've made a mess of everything. I'm not going to do this again. It's obviously not my gift. <laughs> like saying that worship is not your gift. But Paul had those same kind of results, and so when we see those kinds of results, all three of those kinds of results, we should rejoice and say, man, I'm really good at this. God is really using me in just the way that he used the Apostle Paul. Bring it on, Lord. I'm ready for some more. So if we know we don't have to worry about what we're going to say, and we have in mind what we can expect, what keeps us from going in obedience to the Lord? To make the connections, build the relationships, engage the conversations, which stretched out over periods of time and duration will ultimately lead to some of those chosen ones hearing the good news, and coming to be a part of the good work that God is doing here. 
So pray, but also go. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. The fact is the laborers are few. And so we come to our three questions as we bring our word to a conclusion this morning. Number one, do you believe Jesus? If you don't believe Jesus, may I invite you to go home this afternoon, stand in front of the mirror and say out loud in a clear and compelling voice, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, sustainer of the universe, redeemer of the elect, I do not believe your word. And then call the chief because you have a problem. (laughs) If you do believe his word, then respond to it with gratitude and anticipation and joy at the prospect of what Jesus can do in the lives of those who believe his word. Secondly, do you care about the lost? A couple of things in this passage I don't want you to miss. When Jesus said to his people to go out in there, he said, you're going out into a very seriously dangerous place. There are wolves out there ready to tear you apart, make your life scary and miserable, difficult, arduous. You know what? There are a lot of people who don't know Jesus Christ Susie and I watch the news at night or we watch explanations of stories. At times we just turn to one another and say, what do people do who don't know Jesus? Who have no hope? Who are losing their jobs? Whose families are falling apart? Whose kids are getting in trouble? Who've lost a loved one? Who don't know where to turn? Who are being turned out of their homes and into the streets? The wolves of this world are threatening to devour more and more people every day. And they have no hope. Apart from Christ, Paul says, they are without hope in the world. They have nothing to cling to because everything they've clung to for all those years is now turning to dust and ashes before them. Where do they go? Do you care about that? And then notice what Jesus says in the last verse here. Notice what's waiting for those who don't learn the way of repentance and renewal in Christ. Judgment. Judgment is coming. Oh, yeah, I know we don't talk about that much in the church these days anymore. You know, that's not a pleasant thing for people to hear. Well, yeah, it's not pleasant to go across the street and knock on your neighbor's door and tell them, oh, excuse me, sir, but your attic is on fire. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want to offend you in any way, but your house is burning down around you. I hope you don't get upset with me. You may not believe me, and of course, you may just reject that altogether, go back and watch your television program, but I'm here to tell you your house is burning down around you. And it's only because I love you that I tell you that, not because I scorn you or because I think somehow some judgment is falling around you right now. I care about you. And if you're not coming out of that house on your own volition, pal, I'm going in there and dragging you out before it's too late. Is that our attitude toward the lost? Do we care that their house is burning down around them and we see that fire and they don't? If we did, wouldn't we go? For God so loved the world and all of its ravaging and ravening and in view of the judgment to come that he sent Jesus. And if we love the world of lost people, we'll take Jesus to them as well. Do you believe the Lord Jesus? Do you care about the lost? And finally, will you take up the challenge? that could not be any clearer from this text. Pray, 
and go. Your options are clear. You can say, yes, I will take up the challenge. I don't know how, but God has commanded me. Our attitude needs to be like the attitude of, of Augustine, who said to the Lord, command what you will and give what you command. We don't know how we're going to pull this off. We don't know how we're going to remember to pray for one another and for ourselves. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to go out into my school or my neighborhood or into my workplace tomorrow with the eyes of an evangelist looking for the opportunities that God may put before me. But Lord, that's what I'm going to do. Command what you will, Lord, and give what you command. Will you take up the challenge to pray? Will you take up the challenge to go? Because if not, the other option is to say, no, Lord, I will not. Not that I can't, it's that I won't. Not that I don't know how, it's that I won't. It's not that I'm afraid, it's that I won't. I won't. I won't. Oh, let's not be found in that place before God. Let's be found standing before Him like that trembling Isaiah who had no clue what he was getting himself into or how greatly he would be used but who in response to the revelation of God, inquiring whom shall we send and who shall go forward, said plainly and clearly, Lord, here am I. Send me. Let's pray. Lord, we know how we're going to do this because we've never done it before. We know it's going to be a little bit scary and risky, but we believe that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. We believe that your word is alive and powerful. We believe that your spirit can fill and use us. We believe that your good purposes cannot be thwarted. And so, as one, we say to you, O oh Lord, with the prophet, here we are, send us and bring in the fruit into this church, Lord in ways we've never seen before, for the glory of your name, amen.